welcome to the 36th MAI Speaks. Today we have with us, as Sir has mentioned, Dr. Ayelet Harel Shalev. Uh, so before I introduce her, um, I'm going to give a brief introduction to the book. The book's title is Breaking the Binaries in Security Studies, a Gendered Analysis of Women in Combat. So the book focuses on women combat soldiers in experience, uh, women's uh, combat soldiers' experiences in conflict zones. Uh, the book introduces a theoretical framework in security studies for understanding the integration of women soldiers into combat and combat support roles and explores the challenges they face. Um, the book is exploring the voices and silences of women who serve the combat roles in the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, drawing on interviews with 100 women military veterans about their experiences in combat, the book asks what insights are gained when we talk, uh, when we take women's experiences in war as our starting point, instead of treating them as add-ons to more fundamental or mainstream level of analysis. Uh, the book has been written by, uh, co-authored by uh, Dr. Ayelet Harel Shalev and Shid Daphna Tekwa. Ayelet is an associate professor in the uh, Conflict Management and Resolution Program and the Department of Politics and Government, Ben Gurion University. Her academic interests include uh, feminist IR, women and war, ethnic conflicts, democracy, minority rights, and so on. She did her PhD from Tel Aviv University on the topic, the challenge of survivability of democracy in deeply divided societies, India and Israel as case studies. Her co-author, Shed Dafna, is a, a senior lecturer in the uh, Faculty of Social Work at the Ashkelon Academic College and the head of social work department in Kaplan Medical Center in Israel. Her academic interests include gender, health, and violence, women combatants, and dissociation and trauma. In parallel to their own solo publications and individual careers in political science and social work, they have large-scale multidisciplinary joint research project about women in combat, in which they have published extensively about combat trauma, violence, gender, peace and war, narrative analysis, and methodological consideration while studying violent conflicts from within and more. The current book was published by Oxford University Press and was recently published in a Hebrew version as well. With this, I open the floor to Ayelet. Thank you so much for this honor to, to come here and talk. Uh, I have to admit that I wish that I could visit Delhi in person and be with you at the same room, but you know, uh, Zoom has its own advantages. I'm very, very excited to be here. Um, and to present this work. Um, so let's begin. Uh, I think that I will share the main questions that we had that Shir and I uh, thought about this book project. And uh, in our research, we ask, why is it important to explore women in combat? What do their experiences teach us? What is the meaning of referring to soldiers and veterans, both as citizens and as violent state actors? When do women soldiers and veterans actively express their voices and when do they silence them? Should we identify them with the state 
how do women combatants experience combat trauma? And also, what is the meaning of women's service as combat soldiers for the larger polity and society? We address these questions by exploring the stories and narratives of 100 women who served in combat roles in the military. Each chapter of the book discuss one of these questions. In this talk, we will present a short glimpse of our finding. So what drew us to initiate uh, this study? Um, we know that some of the audience is not from the field. So to give you some background, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with feminist streams in international relations, from the outset, feminist theory has challenged women's near complete absence from traditional international relation theory and practice. And this absence visible um, both in women's marginalization from decision-making and in the assumption that the reality of women's day-to-day -day lives is not impacted by or important to international relations. Beyond this, feminist contributions to IR can also understood through their deconstruction of gender, both as socially constructed identities and as a powerful organizing logic. This means recognizing and then challenging assumptions about masculine and feminine gender roles that dictates what both women and men should or can do in global or local politics and what counts as important in consideration of international relations. Now, one of the consequences of this stream is making women visible in IR and security studies. And the current book is written in this intellectual context. Now, the 1990s saw women beginning to fill a wider range of roles in the military with bans on women serving in combat roles being gradually relaxed in some countries a process that is still ongoing. As a result, women are able to fly combat aircraft, serve in artillery units, staff missile emplacements, serve as combat medics, and fill various other roles that involve potential combat exposure. Additionally, many more women are being assigned to combat support roles located on the front line. Yet today, about three decades after the start of these changes, most research on women involved in the military life still concerned itself with widows, the wife of enlisted men, women that were sexually assaulted in the military, or women in non-combat related military service. The amount of research about women combatants is growing, but it's still limited. It is thus obvious that women combatants who fulfill assignments in conflict zone and who participate in various armed struggles deserve closer attention in the research arena. Now within the larger debate on military conscription, the dominant gender images of war have been relatively fixed for centuries. Men are the militarists and women are the pacifists or victims. Men are the warriors marching into battle, whereas women march for peace. So when women are involved in the battlefield, their contribution is typically underestimated and underdocumented. In light of this context, the experiences of Israeli women combatants drew our attention and sparked our curiosity. 
Now, I will open with one of the clearest examples about binary conceptions in the military and in the sphere of security study. Several months after one of Israel's military operations, 53 Israel Defense Forces combatants and combat support soldiers were awarded military decorations for exhibiting extraordinary bravery. Now, from a gender perspective, the most noteworthy aspect of these awards was not the fact that only four of the recipients were women, but rather the difference between the justification for the awards given to men and those of the awards to women. Men soldiers were uniformly praised for being brave, actively performing acts of bravery, protecting, and so on. But the women combatants were commended mainly for not panicking. One of the women soldiers who had reportedly spotted armed terrorists trying to infiltrate an Israeli kibbutz was praised for not panicking and immediately informing her commanders. Another women soldier was said to have identified 13 terrorists emerging from a tunnel and similarly did not panic. Thus, with respect to gender, the language of the awards obviously reinforced existing norms. Praiseworthy men combat soldiers are those who show their strong and active nature through acts of bravery, while praiseworthy women combat soldiers are those who overcome their weak and hysterical nature by not panicking. This pattern is not unique to the Israeli case. It reflects the patriarchal norms that still prevailed in military institutions worldwide. One might have expected that so many years after the entry of women into the battlefield as combatants, some of the gender norms informing militaries would have come under considerable strain. However, as we find in our research, women in the military still face a double battle, fulfilling the role as combat soldiers, experiencing combat trauma, and fighting against the state's purported enemies, and at the same time, battle against the patriarchal and masculine nature of the military. Now, let us move to the uh, next point. The binary between hysterical women and brave men is not the only binary conception that exists in the research arena of conflict, violence, and the military. There are binary conceptions in the study of security, in the study of trauma, in the study of protection. It was these binary conceptions that spark our curiosity and led us to embark to the current research while presenting the combatants as narrators that are telling their own story about their military service. Now, one of the first binary conceptions we explore is the heated debate among scholars, including feminist scholars, regarding the meaning of women's participation in the military. In fact, Women's struggle for equal participation in the military is often criticized. Many scholars hold the view that the struggle for equality in the military has this destructive side effects, including the possibility of reinforcing militarism, encouraging the militarization of women's life, and even of bringing about legitimization of the use of force. Some people claim that women should be, first of all, fighting for peace, and for justice, and only later take care of equality and the military, if at all. Then yet again, decide for women what they should or shouldn't do. Additionally, some observers even claim that the integration of women in the military 
particularly into combat roles, have a feminizing and weakening effect in military units. In Israel, some religious groups oppose the incorporation of women to combat units as well, adding more reservation to the discussion. On the other hand, other scholars think that women should integrate into the military in order to gain equality and equal status as in other spheres in life, since military service is one of the most distinctive symbols of full citizenship, especially in societies in, in which military service is dominant and is mandatory. Just as the service of men in the military often translates into many formal and informal rights in their civilian life, so the exclusion of women from combat roles in the military in many countries is related to their diminished civic status. Yet, irrespective to the academic or perhaps ideological debate, since women are indeed currently serving in a variety of combat roles and combat support positions in many countries around the globe, our position is that there is much to be learned from this phenomena about gendered elements of military service and power relations as well as about alternative interpretation of basic assumption in the field of security and violence. So with regard to the question of identification of the soldiers with the state, we can mention that the soldiers often related to their own society as state, but did not spare criticism from the government. So let us see in the next slide, Okay, so we can see in this slide, today we have a Sigal, uh, one of the first women combat soldiers in the Israeli Defense Forces, she said. Um, now, when I look back, is it actually possible that the prime minister could send us to war with Iran tomorrow? Does anyone really know what he is doing to this country? Does anyone know where he is leading it? So it's really interesting to see that in the interviews with the women, uh, who have already completed their military service, we traced expression of criticism, often indirect, of state policy and political decisions, although almost never at the military itself or military personnel. So if we started to talk about the prime minister and about Israel and about these uh, uh, elements, let us move to the next slide and talk a little bit about our case study. Let's talk a little bit about Israel, the context of our research. So the Israeli societies, as, as, as you may know, uh, perceives war and preparations for war as unavoidable processes. Military service for Israeli women became mandatory soon after the creation of the State of Israel, and women comprise one third of the military personnel. Exemptions are given to ultra-Orthodox women and Arab women. Plus, when a woman is getting married, she is no longer obligated to serve in mandatory service, she can continue to serve, but it's not mandatory. This rule does not apply to men. In addition, while military service in Israel is compulsory for both women and men, women's service in combat roles is voluntary. Women have had to struggle for the right to join combat units and to fill combat roles, and combat service for women is considered more prestigious than traditional feminine or administrative military roles. Nonetheless, women in combat roles remain the exception rather than the rule, and Israel still lags behind 
other nations in this respect. And not all roles are open to women. Uh, if we're talking about one third of the military that is comprised of women, in uh, 2015, only 3% of women soldiers served in combat position, whereas now we can talk about 8% of the women in the military are serving in combat units. The numbers are continuing to rise and much more women are serving in combat support positions. So I have to say that the book does not delve directly into the predicament of Israeli society or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the occupation, the Israeli-Arab conflict per se, but rather focuses on the narration of the experiences of women combatants in the Israel Defense Forces. Well, these conflicts and these contexts is always in the background of their experiences. We thought to present their formative experiences during their military service uh, and their perspective in the military afterlives as civilians in a heavily militarized society. So to talk a little bit about the women that are included in our study, uh, they have been drafted into the military at about the age of 18 and volunteered for combat and combat support roles. And they all served as combatants for a number of years. Uh, half of them were combat support soldiers, half were combat soldiers. And uh, they served on one of Israel's fronts, borders or checkpoints in the borders between Israel and Syria, Israel and Lebanon, Israel and the West Bank and Israel and the Gaza Strip. And all interviewees has been exposed to various manifestations of the violent armed conflict between Israel and its neighbors. Um, so what I think I'll do today is um, each chapter of our book focuses on one of the main topics that were dominant in the interviewee's stories, violence and state violence, trauma and combat trauma, gender, voice and silence, their uh, struggle to integrate into the military and so on. So I think that today we will discuss topics that are related to some of these uh, elements and I will share examples with you of their narratives. So let us start with the issue of their struggle to integrate uh, into combat roles. And uh, uh, we can move to the next slide now. So uh, I think that the soldiers' narratives reveals, uh, reveal Jack's positions of feeling and competence and vulnerability and shed light on women's struggle for gender integration in the military. Through the women's narratives, the issues of body and sex gender are addressed alongside variety of ambivalent non-binary descriptions and interpretation of what it means to be feminine or masculine in the military environment and what it means to be a combatant. Now, feminist security studies and feminist uh, theories and in international relations offer an additional perspective on security. These theories hold that wars and conflict should incorporate an analysis of how people have experienced war in many different ways, and not solely by the analysis of state elites or applying the international system level of analysis. As such, given the violence that usually accompanies armed conflict, these studies often center on the embodied person that is on what happens to his or her body and how his or her body functions in war zone. These facets of war experiences and of the combatant's body were reflected in numerous ways in the narratives of the soldiers we interviewed. 
and um, we will share some of the examples now. During the interviews, the soldiers frequently emphasized their capabilities and their ability to act during warfare and the ability to protect others during combat. Adina, a combat medic, shared with us her experience of evacuating bodies of good soldiers under fire in one of Israel's operations. And I apologize if it's a bit difficult to hear these um, narratives because they obviously involve uh, death, injury, and trauma. In these situations, you disconnect yourself. Now, when I look back, I can see myself doing all these things as if I were outside my body. My role as a combat paramedic during my military service involved technical stuff. I had to lift the dead body, prop it up, hold it until we reached the border. There is no one else who can do this. You need to get the corpses out now. Otherwise, imagine what would happen to the soldiers if they saw the friends burned. It's horrible. The goal was to get the bodies out as fast as we could, no matter with which car, no matter how. I did it for the soldiers. They shouldn't see their friends dead. We transfer the bodies like a sack, move the body and move on. Now, in addition to her emphasis on the doing and her need to disconnect in order to function under severe stress and to cope with danger and trauma, Adina's war narrative also sheds new light on the issue of protection. It is interesting to see how combat soldiers position themselves as opposed to other soldiers, eager to protect both combat soldiers and non-combat soldiers. In the interviews, we noted frequent references to the protective elements in women's roles, including both instances in which they protected others and instances in which they resisted being protected by men. Now, protection is a central theme in security studies. Identities of men as protectors and women as protected afford women and men differing access to power and decision-making in the state. As constructed historically, the state's primary duty in the, is the protection of the population from foreign threats, a task carried out usually by men through the rules of designated military service. And women have thus became second-class citizens. Nonetheless, they're expected to be loyal, obedient, and perhaps grateful to their protectors. And they're also expected to take on the role of the carer. The narratives of the women soldiers interviewed in this group project clearly indicated that while they do indeed express care, they themselves drew the, saw their actions as protection. Thus, the women soldiers themselves broke the carer-protector binary. The act of protection was dominant in their narratives. Continuing to the topic of the body of the female combatants, the interviewees noted ways in which the military was not ready for women's bodies. They described that the equipment was not always suited to their anatomy. Worldwide, several militaries are currently working to design and produce gender-specific gear, but this process is still far from complete, and it is a burning issue. Alongside the description of unsuitable military gear, the women often reflected among themselves about what it means to be a woman in the military. 
and what it means to be feminine in the military. So I can give you some examples. Uh, in the next slide, we can see, for example, Tal that described with frustration the process that she went through. After the entire process of combat training, I became a man. As a combatant, I'm not a strong woman, but a kind of a weak man. Noah, for example, reflected on the complex nature of femininity and masculinity in the military as she understood it. How can I be feminine here? If I look like a man, I behave like a man, I crawl like a man, then am I a woman? I want to develop a different perception of what it means to be feminine. To be feminine doesn't necessarily mean to be gentle and to wear makeup. To be feminine for me is to be strong, to be protective, to be supportive of others. Maybe this is what feminine means. So I give it a different meaning. Noah's view constructed in an interesting way with Tal's comment to the effect that in the army, she became a weak man rather than a strong woman. And Tal's views echoes with the theoretical debate about gender, which presumed that to act like a soldier is not to be womanly. The women soldiers who we interviewed grappled with the question of their gendered identities as combatants. And while each of the women we interviewed held their own particular interpretation of the role she ought to have assumed as a combatant, all interviewees acknowledged that the system demanded that they will become more masculine. Most express a certain tension between the desire to meet the expectation on the one hand and the resistance to it on the other. Another aspect of the women combatants integration into combat roles was related to how men in the same roles treated them. Alongside with description of, of men who did indeed support the women combatants, a recurring theme in the interviews related to men soldiers who disregarded and underestimated the women in combat, expressed the discomfort with women officers and with women in combat roles. Tal, a woman combatant, described the double standard applied to women and men combatants. When you are tough, you're considered a bitch. You're not considered strong. No, you are a bitch. Whereas a man behaves at the same way, everyone says, what a man. But you, you're just a whore. Rotem, a combatant, spoke about her frustration when men were picked for a certain operational role instead of her. I was very successful in the physical training. I was ranked second in everything, except for one guy. I was ahead of all the guys. Yet when there was a security operation, they picked the guys and not me. I was frustrated. I'm talented, I'm athletic, I shoot well, and I'm not appreciated enough. The ex-combatants admitted that they encountered the same double standards in civilian life. In the book, we expose a wide spectrum of interpretations of what it means to be women combatant and how the women in combat support roles coped with these dilemmas. I would like to, to move along with uh, their narratives and along with the emphasis on their capabilities and their ability to fulfill the combat duties during warfare, one of the important aspects that was brought to us by the combatants is the issue of trauma. To set up the framing of the subject, I would clarify that historically, 
research on human-induced trauma and its aftermath began with Freud in response to the combat distress of men combatants. This research was later complemented by studies of the trauma of women and children as abused victims. Current knowledge about trauma, therefore, stems from studies on combat men and victim women. And combat and combat trauma are still often treated in the empirical categories of men versus women. By focusing on the narratives of women combatants, our analysis breaks with the traditional ways in which war-associated trauma have been studied. We suggest that certain aspects of trauma can be understood through the study of women exposed to combat trauma as perpetrators, as victims, or as both. Our study therefore moved beyond the gender dichotomy as well as beyond the hero narratives of war to explore narratives by the women soldiers and veterans that were out there making war. In parallel, we also exposed narrative of potentially traumatic events that were not necessarily narratives of PTSD. The nature of the traumatic events experienced by the women soldiers um, included exposure to death, threatened death, injury, and so on. And I apologize in advance for some difficult descriptions. I'll give you some examples. Debbie's descriptions of her experience as a combat medic capture the kinds of challenges and traumatic effects common to women combatants and women in combat support rooms. So let's read a, a, at least a part of it. I remember I didn't feel a thing. Before that, I had to pee. And when, I, when they brought the dead bodies and the wounded soldiers, I didn't feel anything. I didn't think about anything. I didn't have to pee anymore. I felt a mixture of stuff. And there was the smell. I, re I remember the smell. I smell it now. A burned body has a weird smell and so on. I smell it only from dead bodies. I remember I didn't feel anything afterwards. One of the men combat medics puked and another one was nauseous. I ignored it and kept on doing stuff, taking care of them, like it wasn't a part of my life. This interview with you is the first time I'm telling about the bodies, as if it's not a part of my life right now. Presenting women soldiers as narrator of their own experiences, as in Debbie's case, hold the potential to expose various overlooked aspects of trauma. Moreover, instead of moving directly to statistics and symptoms of distress, PTSD, and psychopathology, we suggest that researchers and the public has to focus on detailed description of potentially traumatic events. The combat soldiers who we interviewed often expressed the need to set aside their emotion in order to function during their military service. I'll, I'll give you one more example. Ella, a combat support soldier, described witnessing a friend being killed. And I'll, I'll skip most of the parts. A minute ago, we were talking near the cafeteria of the base. He sat right next to my body. A minute later, he was gone. Not only that, I saw with my own eyes how he was killed on the war room screens. You see that and you cannot cry. You just cannot cry. 
And seeing her friend killed, Ella's body reacted. She wanted to cry, but she was not able to cry. Her response can be understood in the context of the military environment whose gender norms did not allow her to cry. In her combat-related role, she needed to act like a man. Ella described the inconceivable and sudden contrast between the experience of being close to her friend and his violent death and subsequent absence. There is an immense value in studying the responses to traumatic events and in the context of the combatants' narratives. For example, Debbie had been able to bring back the smell of the dead bodies only during the interview with us. Recollections, she said, that have not been a part of her life until we asked her about her experience. Now, this is not the only factor that motivates us to research in detail experience that comprise women's trauma. Women who enter combat roles have to cope with both physical and mental difficulties deriving to their exposure to combat, life-threatening events, death, and other traumatic events. And in addition, they have to cope with gender division and hegemonic masculinity in the military. Most of the interviewees were appreciative that we asked them about their experiences and acknowledged how important it was to talk about these experiences. Yet these combat soldiers, of course, should not be regarded as a homogeneous group since they experience these elements uh, differently. Combat trauma was prevalent both among combat soldiers and among combat support soldiers. And it's very, very, I think, important to talk about this. Listening to the mosaic of traumatic narratives of combat women exposes the reality in the front line. Most of the women interviewed mentioned that they continue their combat roles along with frequent potentially traumatic events that they experience. Exposing the interviews is important both on a personal level and on a sociopolitical level. I think that societies have long avoided listening to stories about combat trauma, preferring to deal instead with heroes, numbers, perhaps laundered statistics and so on, and laundered language. And uh, I think that truly listening to war stories can be devastating, but it's really, really important for societies that have responsibilities that are sending the soldiers to the battlefield. I think I would like to uh, sum up with perhaps more positive element of uh, the interviews. And I would like to move to discuss shortly their transition to civil life. War and military service are acknowledged as enabling the young male to become a man. What then is war for combat women? Following this line of thought, one should ask, what can we say about the so-called reverse process of becoming a civilian again? What is the nature of this process for women veterans? To understand the multiple ways in which women's militarized subjectivities are constructed, it is necessary to disaggregate the different groups of women in the military and to differentiate between women who have constricted into mandatory military service and those who served as professional militaries or volunteer forces. Overall, to engage with experiences of war and political violence, one should not hesitate to explore and to listen carefully to the combatants' voices. The narratives of the combat soldiers about their discharge from the military and subsequent transitioning to civilian life varied from interviewee to interviewee. 
A substantial number of women veterans told us they moved naturally, occasionally with some minor shock into their civilian life upon completing their mandatory service. The fact that the majority of Israeli young adults, women and men alike, follow a similar path might serve as a supporting mechanism for these veterans. So as the women combat soldiers who we interviewed repeatedly emphasized, when they re-entered civilian life, even if only for a weekend break from the military service, they struggle with patriarchal norms, even though they carried with them the war experiences and they were well aware of their capabilities. Adina, a combatant, recounted the following exchange with her father after she told him about her involvement in an operational activity very deep in enemy territory. Let's see what she says. My dad told me, how did they let you do that? I don't believe they let my daughter do that. And I said to him, what do you mean let me? I chose to do that. He was very upset that I went into the battlefield, into enemy territory during an operation. And I told him, what about my brother and my cousins? They also went into enemy territory. And my father replied, no, it's not the same. It's not the same. Adina was certain that she was the best candidate to do this dangerous job, but her father disregarded her abilities. Many combatants shared that others were surprised and skeptical about their involvement in combat. We gained a different perspective from Susanna uh, and her reflection on her service. She said, I am a combatant. It is, in my view, proof that I can do anything in life. Since if I, can, if I did this, is there anything I cannot do? Until today, I'm very proud of this. I wouldn't change it for the world. So if I'd like to conclude, and that was really a, a tiny piece of our research, uh, I think that uh, uh, the research in general on the double battle faced by women combatants in conflict zones as soldiers and as women illustrates the complexities of their status. In their narratives, the women describe more challenges and struggle that we covered here today, and they discussed moral complexities of their service in particular and challenges of serving in a military that controls civilian population. They brought to us diverse voices and interpretation of their status and their roles. And into this complex situation, gender elements entered. They had to cope with sexual harassment and they um, had to cope with gender stereotypes and some resistance from their male counterparts during their service. Now, integrating women into the military does indeed promote gender equality. But at the same time, it involves a militarization of women's lives and situates them at the front line of making war and causing violence. UN Security Council Resolution 1325 recognizes women's right to participate as decision makers at all levels in conflict prevention, conflict resolution and peace building processes, and also recently in peacekeeping operations. The call for women's integration into the military in combat and combat support roles further support their somewhat controversial right uh, uh, to move on 
and, and to, to integrate? And this is a very, very difficult uh, question here. Now, I think that in this talk, I had the opportunity um, indeed to, to present a small piece of our findings. And in the book itself, we elaborate much more about each theme. And returning to the, the construction of binary conceptions, we take the position that women should be viewed as capable and vital actor in armed conflict, rather than merely passive victims. Likewise, soldiers and veterans should not be described as either pacifist or militarist. There are many perspectives along this continuing. And our study opens a call for scholars to probe further into the meaning uh, and interpretation of women's presence in today's battlefield. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to present a small piece of my work here. Uh, thank you, thank you, Dr. Alice. Um, I now open the floor for questions. If you have any questions, please write it in the chat box. Um, but before I start reading out some, uh, Sian, sir, do you have any questions, sir? Sian, sir? Thank you very much for a very comprehensive presentation. And war is a dirty business. Uh, as you were delivering your presentation, I was thinking of uh, Pope uh, Paul VI, who in 1967 spoke at the United Nations in New York. And uh, he had a very interesting sentence, which still rings in my ear after all these years. He said, man should put an end to war or war will put an end to men. After listening to you, uh, I should amend that saying and said, men and women should put an end to war. Otherwise, war is going to put an end to men and women. Thanks. Thank you for this comment. And in, in that sense, I think that uh, our critical reading of the experiences of soldiers I think it's very, very careful not to present uh, militarized pictures of what's going on and to actually bring the truth in the face of societies, leaders, scholars, students of war and the military. It is a difficult task to be a soldier. It is a very difficult task to be a combatant and war is indeed a dirty business. Deepa, you are muted. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, Arushi has asked, um, could you please talk about the change in socioeconomic status of women in combatant roles? Okay, thank you so much for this question. So indeed, um, first of all, in the context of Israel, we need to remember that uh, almost everyone goes to the military. I mean, it's something that all societies are going through and, and, uh, and opposed to other societies in which uh, joining the military is a choice in Israel, it's not, it's, in Israel, it's not a choice. So uh, uh, in that sense, uh, we were hoping to see some upgrading in the status, yes, in, in the status in civil life after the military service in, uh, of women that serve in combat roles when we know now that it's still not the case. It is still not the case. And I also can relate to the fact that, um, for instance, if you, if you know, if you can see if you're following Israeli politics, so everybody 
uh, is always waiting for the chief of staff, the, gen the general, when he uh, leaves his, uh, his uh, position in the military, they're waiting him to join politics. And they're looking, okay, so which party he's gonna go and join into Eisenkot was released recently and everybody was waiting for Eisenkot, uh, the, the previous chief of staff, which party is gonna join if he decides uh, not to go into politics. We see other generals that didn't, uh, was so successful in politics. And in woman, with women, I have to say, this is not really the case. I mean, uh, we still cannot see uh, uh, what's happening to women in terms of uh, socioeconomic status. But I can tell you another thing. I think that this whole uh, experience of being a combatant, I think that women that conclude this kind of service are in a way, most of them at least, more secure in their position in society. And now when they're gonna go in their civic life in, in some sort of job or where, wherever they're gonna be, and some, uh, they will hear some comments, sexistic comments or sexual harassment. So they will, they know their place, excuse me, can you stop this nonsense and we can move on? And this was something that was repeatedly, repeatedly a presence in the narratives in terms of they know their place. You will not uh, cause me to shut up. I will say what I have to say. So it's not about uh, promoting them or advancing them in terms of socioeconomic status, but it's something internal that uh, uh, most of them have now that they're secure in their position in society of, of really being uh, 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 recognizing their abilities. And it's really, really important, I think. Okay. Uh, so we have another question which says, do you think there's a direct correlation between lack of women in political leadership and their composition in the IDF? Um, well, I don't know. I think it's the other way around because usually, as I said before, uh, usually uh, the public, because the military is very, very central in Israel, many times we're waiting for the general to conclude the roles and join politics and not the other way around. Now, I have to say that recently, at least in these elections, we have a fourth elections in two years and we can talk about a different talk about Israeli politics and you know instability and so on, but uh, seriously, I think that the the civil uh, um, elements and uh, uh, civil priorities are the economic priorities, coping with coronavirus and all that. It's like it's more important at the moment. So I can see that the, the leading the leading now, the leading politicians are not necessarily those who were, uh, you know, build up in the military and move on, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, civil politicians uh, from other uh, spheres in life. Okay. Uh, Ma'am, Ankita is asking, do men and women combatants share the same privi uh, privileges once they retire? Okay, so uh, in a sense, I have to say that at first, yes, because everyone that is uh, entitled to this role, they have the specific card, they have a specific rights, 
So everybody that are released from the military and the war combatants, they have specific rights in uh, gaining education, higher education, uh, and specific monetary assistance. But I have to say that much more men are reaching higher levels and higher ranks in the military. Therefore, their salary is much higher and their, uh, and their uh, starting point in the civic life afterwards in a much higher status. But all the combatants uh, in, in the same level in the lower ranks are at the same uh, status uh, when they released in, from the army. So a very similar question has also been asked by Anuradha. The existing uh, infrastructure already allows women to serve leadership roles above battalion level. But with this combat restriction being lifted, where will lower ranks fall into when the promotion race is already a competitive field? Well, I think that um, we need to understand now there is another element in the military that the, um, I think that some of the prestigious roles are combat roles and elite units, but some of the prestigious roles are considered the special units in the intelligence. The special units in the intelligence that uh, um, could be considered as those that in civic life, you can go straight to high tech companies and they will just take you into uh, I don't know, prestigious role, and then we have wonderful salary. So we don't have only the combat roles. We have also the intelligence that is very, very, very uh, prestigious now. And I think that in the all other roles, administrative roles, we we'll still have men and women that are conducting these roles. And um, I think women are still the majority of those who are conducting all the administrative roles. And men are as I said, the majority in combat roles, but there's, there's a slight uh, trend in the statistics. Okay. Um, Samina, ma'am, Samina, ma'am, do you want to ask this question? Uh, thanks. You can put up yourself. You can read it out straight away. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. Um, so uh, the next question uh, is: In order to cope up with the discriminatory behavior of leadership and peers, do combat women attempt to show greater brutality? Um, I think that this is a wonderful question. And what we, um, what we heard from them uh, did not include greater brutality, but they did indeed try to prove themselves worthy all the time. They felt that they had to be better than the boys better than the guys in order to be okay. So they always fight together to run faster, to shoot better, to do everything in the exercises, everything much, much better in order to consider uh, uh, themselves worthy and to justify their position there. And I have to say that they were uh, very much frustrated when the uh, possibility was not given to them because even though when they are considered as combatants, when there is operational activity, in, informally, they take them in. They take them in. So, you know, they have to, no, 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 I'm also, you know, soldiers, they want to see action. They want to participate. They want to prove their abilities, whatever this action might be. And it's really, really uh, important, but so they have to struggle that even if they are within the same unit, they have to struggle to go to active duty. 
And this is very, very interesting that I have to cut to, 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 to fight for this. To, to, okay. uh, yeah. Nina, uh, can I ask you to? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I would like to ask whether the Israeli army is promoting some programs to better integrate women in uh, combat roles. Thank you. I, I didn't hear the sound somehow is, uh, can you repeat this question louder? Yes, I would like to ask whether the Israeli army is promoting some programs to better integrate women in combat roles. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Nina. So um, I think that, first of all, I think the, the issue of the amount of women is very, very important. Because in general, in Israel, there's the larger amount of women in the military in, in any other state. There's no any other state that have one third of the military personnel that are women. So soldier in general, soldiers in general are used to seeing women in, in, you know, in, in their environment. Now, when women are going into combat roles, at first it was very, very difficult because there was just a few. Now we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So I think that the commanders are starting to grasp the idea that women are there and should be treated equally and respectfully. But as I said at the beginning of the talk, you know, this whole issue of the award ceremony that was, you know, uh, after one of Israel's operations. So the, I think that the general will think, okay, we need to include women in this prize because, you know, uh, uh, we need to think about equality and so on and so forth. So they included women, but the justification for the award that they, they did not panic. Seriously? Is this the justification that you could find? You know, I have narratives of 100 women that did in extraordinary things and, and actions and, and everything. And this is the best that you could do. So obviously the generals are, you know, need to go through a process in order to do that. And also in terms of military gear, there are all sorts of, of um, thinking about this issue. They have specific vests that, you know, they insert slowly, slowly and gradually. And I can give you an example, like I have an interview with some commandant and she was describing a status that she was sitting in an ambush. And she was, it was in the, the border with Egypt and it was against those infiltrators that come from Africa. It wasn't like a military thing, but she was sitting there and trying to, uh, 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 to see if they're gonna cross or not gonna cross. And she said, I'm sitting there, I'm in an operational activity. And all that I can think of that I, I shouldn't, sorry for using this word, that I shouldn't pee right now because my snowsuit is not suitable for me. I can't do it right here. I'm with the men soldiers next to me and I can't operate this. So now I heard that they're inserting specific snowsuits, they're inserting specific you know, uniforms, but it's really, really slow. It's slow because women are already there and they need this equipment in order to do the role uh, you know, to the best that they can. Uh, Kumar Swami, sir, can I ask you to <clears throat> put yeah, up the yeah. question, please? Um, thanks, thanks, Deepa. It's, it's really delightful to hear you, Ayelet. How many times one can hear it, it's really delightful. Um, you know, there was a reference that the book has been translated into Hebrew or being done. My question is, will the Hebrew translation be the exact literal, literal translation of the original work? 
or are you modifying something which basically mean are you changing anything in your overall approach if that is the case what are the changes which one can see in hebrew not in english thank you so much for this question and uh, again thank you for the invitation to be here um we made a lot of effort to translate the book to hebrew it is not identical to the english version it is a revised version and the revision is mainly because the english version of the book is intended mainly to scholars of international relations and security studies and feminist international relations and so on and the hebrew version is also to scholars of the field of the military and and gender and uh, soci sociology trauma political science but also to the public and another thing that was very very important to us you know israel it's a small state and we are everybody knows everyone it's not everybody but it's like this is the sense and in the difficult parts some of the difficult parts that i was uh i can talk about the explosion that was happening in this front or another front in this year and that year israeli they know who died there they know exactly what happened there someone injured if it's a civilian if it's a soldier we know the names we know we count them and it's it's an issue so we had to not to change the stories that make it brighter but just to make the anonymized truly anonymized that no one or no parents that lost their their kids that they will feel you know uncomfortable uh in a sense uh other modifications also because in hebrew i don't need to explain all that much about the military because others it's like it sounds so weird we like seriously we are a really really weird society the military is so central but for israelis and for hebrew readers it's it's clear it's obvious you know when a, a, a you have a mother in in you know in an ultrasound you have a baby in her you know in her belly she goes to the ultrasound they they say you have a boy the the first thing that comes to your mind okay so which military unit is going to go to so in that sense you know hebrew readers they they feel things that i don't need to mention and uh, you know in the english version it's totally different because it's not natural you know neutral or whatsoever in that sense uh can i ask mudasit to put across his question please uh, thank you it was uh, very nice to hear from you i just wanted to know are there any other studies on kind of you know i mean there are very few countries where actually women serve in, in combatant roles but uh, wherever they do are there any studies on the similar kind of approaches the experiences they face and uh, i mean if there are any studies is there i mean what are the experiences is this very similar or you know are there differences just to get you in just to get yes. in thank you thank you so much thank you for this question i think that um the case that was uh you know the most famous case is the US military and there are many many combat women in the US military and they are all combat roles are open to women 
all combat roles are open to women, also in the Canadian force, also at the Australian force. Uh, so all the roles are open to women, but it is not a mandatory service. So we have uh, also a very, very limited amount of women going into these roles. And also in the US military, specific uh, statuses from societies are joining the militaries. Often in the US military, uh, people from lower status are joining the military into to gain rights afterwards and higher education and so on and so forth. So we have different population here. And I think that, and I'm now involved in a comparative uh, study of uh, US uh, veterans and Israeli veterans. And what is, is striking is that in the US military, sexual, not just sexual harassment, because sexual harassments are everywhere. It's a militarized society, it's a militarized uh, uh, organization. So there are some comments, okay, verbal comments. You have it everywhere, every day in Israel, in America, and so on. But in the US, uh, in the US military, there are many, many, many sexual assaults physical sexual assaults, that the, the narratives of the uh, US military veterans, the women there, was the, the main uh, thing to be fear, like to, 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 be, to, to be afraid of is sexual assaults and not the enemy. So that was striking. And in the Israeli military, also because, the, the, first of all, they recruit everyone. It's the entire society. And also the deployment in America, it was for nine months and then you go home after nine months. It's really disorientation. And in Israel, you go for three weeks and then you go back to weekend to your family, to your friends. You have your, you know, your ideas are organized differently. So I think this is one of the elements here um, that I tackled with, but I, I admit that I didn't do uh, a large scale comparative research, but it's, uh, it's a different experience. And another thing that I can say is the fact that in Israel, the enemies or what is considered to be enemies is really near the borders. And the borders are like three hours from everywhere. It's like, it's such a tiny place. So you just need to go, it's like five hours from north to south and, and, and two and a half hours from west to, to east. You know, you can't, so when you, when you think about protecting the country, so you really feel, you know, the soldiers, they feel that they're protecting the country, whatever the cause would be, and the politics, if they agree or not agree, but they feel that they're protecting the country. And in other societies, mainly they just need to go abroad and they fly away many, many hours to protect, I don't know, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. So it's like different, different fronts that's very, very far away from home. So the idea of protection is different. Muruti, um, can I ask you to uh, place your question, please? Thank you, Deepa. Thank you, Professor. I think that's a very engaging conversation. I mean, this is something that we hear very often about how, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces are trying to integrate um, the LGBTQ or your non-heterosexual uh, genders also into the armed forces. So I'm just trying to extend the argument and seeing what sort of an impact has breaking these binaries had on integrating even non-heterosexual genders. Um, I think that this, this is a very, very interesting uh, question. I think that um, what we heard from the soldiers 
some of them were lesbians, uh, some of them were not. Uh, they felt very good. They felt very good with their identity. They said that the, the military assisted them to, you know, to accept themselves uh, uh, better. And even I think that um, one of the main issues uh, that was brought to us, we asked them, what was the most meaningful experience that you had in the military? And then we let them answer. You know, everybody answered. One answered about an explosion. One answered about the friend died. One answer about, uh, you know, this front, that front, and so on. And we have a few soldiers that were talking about that, you know, one of them told us, I was in the Gaza front. It was in the middle of operation. And I had a friend of mine, uh, uh, a peer, that was very, very uh, distressed. And he was, um, he was saying that he was, I think he's gay, and he think he wants to change his gender. And, he was, and she was like, and she, she said to us, that was the most meaningful experience that I have, how the military took him, assisted him uh, uh, to move to uh, a different unit and to assist him and escort him in this process of becoming a transgender and moving to a different gender and allowing them to be what he wants to be. And now he is a woman uh, studying abroad. This is what she said. So that was the most you know, meaningful experience for her from the military service to see how the IDF treated her friend. So I think in that sense, I'm sure, I'm sure that there are cases of discrimination, not question whatsoever as in any place elsewhere, but not something specifically. I think that um, if at all, in, in, in that sense, the, the, the women in combat, they felt quite uh, comfortable with their position. Um, so we have another question from Sumana. Um, chauvinistic, chauvinist attitude and misogyny is not limited to men only. Did you come across during your interviews any such in uh, any uh, did you come across your interviews any such inclination among women in combat roles? And in your opinion, how does such change in outlook impacts essentialist understanding of gender? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was a very, very serious question, actually two questions, so I'll try to be brief. I see that our time is running off, but so this is a wonderful question. I think that um, one thing I can say in terms of being a woman or being chauvinistic or, or taking a different stance, what is very interesting was the perception of the combat women as opposed to other women, non-combat women. We heard stories, I was a combat woman. I know how to shoot well. I know how to do this. And they didn't do this training. So they don't know how to shoot and da, 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 da. So we did hear not chauvinistic, you know, but, but like, let's say it gently, they have this uh, sense that they're better. Okay, that the combat, they felt they're better than the non-combat women that was there and they had to protect them. So in that sense, this is the kind of issues that we sense. We didn't uh, see any chauvinistic attitudes other than that. Regarding their appearance, right? That was the second uh, answer of being masculine, being feminine. I have to tell you that the narratives of the soldiers that we interviewed indicated that some of them, they felt strong and being strong and muscly is very, very important when you're 
in duty, on duty, when you're in your military uh, you know, service. But when they go home for the weekend, they felt uncomfortable with all these muscles. So some of them just said, I had to put a lot of makeup and I had to hide my shoulders because my shoulders are, are manly. So they had to struggle. On the one hand, I'm strong. I'm proud that I'm strong and I can do all the things that I do. But when I come home for, for a weekend, I feel uncomfortable because I'm supposed to look in a different shape. So this is one thing that I have. And also another thing that I can say in terms of masculine and feminine, there were many, many descriptions about the relations towards the weapon. They felt very connected to their weapon. They felt that the weapon is a part of their body. They felt proud, like, ooh, look at this. You know, she has a very long gun. Like, you know, it's like, it's really, they were so, so excited about this whole thing, about being in this uh, position and carrying the gun and, you know, also to know how to use it and what to do with it and to protect others. And it was really, really a part of the issue of portraying the body of the combatant, both women and men. So I hope that I answered, you know, at least a part so, of it. Uh... I'm going to be the last one to ask a question. Um, so my question relates to something about sexual harassment. Um, the there's no single definition or you know uh, counts of what can be described as sexual harassment. I'm not talking about physical assault. I'm talking about just harassment. In your interviews, how how did you divide in what is harassment and what is acceptable? Because the changing notion of harassment has kept on changing and it changes with traditions, families and everything. So how, how do you define, okay, we can slot this as harassment, this is what, and this is not harassment. Okay, so definitely we ask them about, in general, about harassments, if they experience this and if they say yes or no, and then we gave them examples. If they have only one comment about you know the body and so on, it's a harassment for sure. If it's a repetitive, repetitive, uh, then it's like in a higher level. And then if there's actual threat or something physical, then we move to the assault level. So in that sense, we ask them specifically about uh, the experiences they have and if they heard about harassment. And sometimes we felt that they don't wanna talk specifically about themselves. So they said, I didn't experience this. But my friend in a different unit, she told me that da 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 da. Or I heard that this and that happened to her. And then we asked for the description. Since this is not uh, you know, a quantitative research, we just wanted to grasp the experience. We assume that some of the stories happened to them, some of the stories happened to others, but we want to grasp the atmosphere of what they're facing with and also how they cope with it. Because it was very, very interesting to say, okay, so what did you do? Did you tell him to stop? Did you uh, inform your commander? Uh, did you do something else? And it was very, very interesting to see how they reacted to these environments. And I think when they were you know, more promoted in their roles, then they were more secure in just pushing everyone away. Just, you know, you're saying this to me, I'll put a bullet in your head. They're not going to put a bullet in their head, but that was the attitude of stay away from me. 
So, uh, and, and I think that in that sense, what I said before about those women going to civil life afterwards and they know the capabilities, I think they'll push not just sexual harassment, just also trying to make them smaller and make them feel you know, not appreciative enough. So I think that will change the perception of women in society in general. Thank you. To end it all, thank you so much, Dr. Ayelet. It was seriously a terrific um, interaction. It was actually really, really amazing to hear you. Uh, with this, we conclude our today's session.